Shut up and sit down. No matter what anybody tells you, words and ideas can change the world. A guy like me should never be allowed to get in here in the first place. I know that. Either I'm dead right or I'm crazy. Frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn. There's only one person in the world who decides what I'm going to do, and that's me. Louis, I think this is the beginning of a beautiful friendship. All right, welcome everyone to another episode of the Kevin King Show on the Tavern Voices Podcast Network. I'm your host, Kevin King, and with me today is a very, very longtime friend of mine, uh, Matt Oakley. I think we've known each other since uh, elementary school days and uh, a lot of uh, fun times on the playground, not discussing the heavy topics that we uh, will inevitably be jumping into today. He is a journalist and a podcaster. Uh, He's involved in some really Awesome work that I will let him talk about uh, as as well. But uh, welcome to the show, Matt. It's uh, it's great. Hey, to thanks have you for here. having me, man. It's it's been a long time coming. I think it, it it really has. We I know we've been talking about this forever, and part of it was me actually making the show happen, which was I would say at least ninety percent of the battle. Yeah, and uh, finally, I actually I've been working uh, out of a friend's house. We built a studio in one of his spare bedrooms for many years now. But I'm finally to the point where I believe I have my own, uh, you know, Studio Del Oakley set up here. And so I'm, I'm really excited about getting the ball rolling on my own projects here. No, that, that, that is a lot of the big deal. I, I think I have most of my equipment haphazardly strapped to my, to my work desk, but we'll call yeah. it a studio and no one will yeah, know Absolutely. The it's all about presentation. Well, I have a. Um, so, what are you working on right now? Give us a little preview, and I'll put links to all the all the things that you want me to put links to in the show notes. But I just want to give people a little taste that you know you have some level of credibility. You're not just a guy that I've known for. Yeah. Many years. Uh, so I am a the weekly co-host on a, a podcast called the Graylian Report, which is available on iTunes or the website, and uh, I also do a little bit of writing for that. Uh, also, the sister podcast, we have Middle Theory, which is more of a current events show, uh, so probably more in tune with the, the demographic you're seeking out with this program. But uh, I occasionally co-host on that show, uh, and then obviously I've written articles for a number of subjects ranging from unexplained phenomenon, which I know is just going to make me sound like a loon here, so I'm not quite sure i want to go that direction but don't go into yeah. the aliens man don't I, go that I, direction. i'm the resident skeptic of the other podcast so so at least i can claim um <laughs> but uh, i've also written economics current events you know philosophy anything you can think of courtesy of of you obviously you've you've been my kind of uh uh you know publishing agent for many years now <laughs> I'm going to have to add that to my resume because I had no idea that I could be considered a, a publishing oh. agent. So I like that. I, yeah, I you, you that. let, you have consistently let me say whatever the hell I want to say. And that, uh, for that you receive the highest marks. Well, I, I'm, I'm, I'm glad to hear that. And that's exactly what brings us here today is talking about that, uh, ever present media source and kind of where we find ourselves today, because I know we have a like mine, Uh, sort of perspective on the fact that the modern media and media outlets are not 
definitely not as they were intended, but, but kind of what power that they, that they willed. And so we were talking, I, I think we kind of named this the defining the fourth estate. What, what exactly should the fourth estate's role be in society? And wh- how are we seeing it impact us? Yeah, well, and I love, and that's how I titled this show document, The Fourth Estate. For those out there who don't know what the fourth estate is, uh, it's an older term. It's a segment of society that wields an indirect but significant influence, even though it is not formally recognized part of the political system. So it comes from the originally the three forms of state were executive, legislative, and judiciary power. But the fourth estate is the media because it keeps them all in check. And our role as journalists for a long time, and I think this still exists, no matter how disenchanted we as a society or as professionals in the field get with, you know, the state of, I I hate to use the term because it sounds like you're on the losing side, the mass media, you know, the, or or as Rush Limbaugh likes to say, the drive-by media even though I sounded more like Alex Jones there. But uh, <laughs> no, uh, I, it's a very important, it keeps the American electorate informed and it gives, you know, it gives pause to people when it's done properly. It gives pause to those in power. And I guess that's sort of the the thing that we are, 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 are trying to drive at is, is, is that what it's actually doing? Is that the role that it is serving Today and I think, I mean, I think that you can make a strong case that it's not, in fact, doing that. That it's, it's almost well. I would say in a way, it, it's almost acting like all the other branches are now, where they are so entrenched that they aren't really a check on the other, but doing their best to to use their power for uh, for their own purposes. Yeah, I agree. And the the thing is, is there's many pitfalls we experience, just as there are pitfalls in government. There's pitfalls. As far as media goes, uh, you know, you and I have a mutual love for the the HBO drama, The Newsroom. And in that, Aaron Sorkin wrote one of the characters saying that uh, William Paley and David Sarnoff, the you know fathers of broadcast journalism, pretty much, forgot to include one thing when they asked for the nation's airwaves, or at least the politicians forgot to legislate in one thing when they asked for the airwaves. And that is that for 23 hours a day, you can make a profit. But for one hour a night, for the nightly news, you work for us. You work for the American people. And I think we've lost a lot of that. It has become a for-profit game. And that's one of the first pitfalls that I think we experienced. And that's been a long time building. But there are many others, I think. And you know, I, I on the show notes page I mentioned a moment ago, I, I had included several things I thought we could get into. But just to run down the list real quick, I had said public perception, you know, is is causing a, a diff, uh, at least a differential shift in the status of the media. Uh, as we all know, they take a dive for ratings more than once <laughs> a night, actually. Uh, one of my big things is the loss of the debate culture that we've seen. We used to have shows like Firing Line with the great William F. Buckley, who's a hero of mine and I know of yours as well. So I think that's a, a negative mark against us. And there are narrowing demographics that we've begun to see. And because of, 
uh, what I mean by narrowing demographics is if you're a Democrat, you watch MSNBC. If you're a Republican, you watch Fox News. That's just how it is. There's no intersectionality between the two. So I, I think that's a big issue as well. Well, and to, to kind of go that, and I think all of these different topics really tie into each other and, and are heavily related. And one of the things that I want to ask you about is how do you see that since people are really only wanting to see their own news source and we are in an era where that's even more easily accessible when you get on Facebook and if you only want to see information from uh, from social justice outlets and MSNBC and all of your Facebook friends that think like you, or if you only want to see things from the, the gun lobby and Fox News and everything like that, you just see this this constant stream of reaffirming beliefs and you are not at, at any point looking at what is an opposing viewpoint. Absolutely. And it's a and vicious cycle. It is. I, I don't I don't see a way that that we can break through that. I think that's what concerns me greatly is I don't know how you get people to because it feels good to be right. That's what Facebook taps into. It's reaffirming your beliefs, no matter what that belief is. Well, and I think, you know, as you said, a lot of these kind of points that I laid out here are kind of tied together. I think part of that, I, I had written down a quote regarding the debate culture. And one of the things that I think is important about the debate culture, I actually had this uh, conversation. I assure you I'm tying all of this together. So it'll, it'll come into a... a riveting row at the end of it. But um, so the loss of the debate culture is something that, that we've seen, I think, only within the past, probably, well, we, we've seen it really detract in the past couple of years, I think. But over the past 15 years, we haven't seen as much debates. We see the talking heads on the nightly news duking it out. Nobody gets a word in edgewise. And if they do, it's usually a talking point. There's no really intel real intellectual discourse. And I was uh, pouring over books in preparation for this interview. And I came across a quote from the late, great Christopher Hitchens, who's just unparalleled in, in his debate format. And, and in the book, Letters to a Young Contrarian, he says, I passed to an observation of the late Sir Karl Popper, who could himself be a tyrant in argument, but who nonetheless recognized that argument was valuable, indeed essential for its own sake. It is very seldom, as he noticed, that the debate, that in debate any one of the two evenly matched antagonists will succeed in actually convincing or converting the other. But it is equally seldom that in a properly conducted argument, either antagonist will end up a end up upholding exactly the same position as that with which he began. Concessions, refinements, and adjustments, adjustments will occur, and each initial position will have undergone modification, even if it remains ostensibly the same. So that's, that, I think, speaks to the nature of why we're so entrenched in seeking out you know, our own personal opinions, our you know, like-minded individuals, like-minded programs, like-minded articles, and, you know, social media posts, followers on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, whatever. It's because we want to be agreed with. It feels better to be agreed with. But one of the things we've lost as far as the debate culture is the ability to make concessions to the other side. When we're not presented, and I think this goes into the the kind of 
absolute abhorrence of the, <laughs> the social media culture and the internet and being overly connected. I think there was a point in which we uh, kind of reached a plateau with the internet. We saw what capacity it could do for good, and then we dove back down into the mud to see what you know negative ill effects it could cause. And that's where we're at right now. So by not searching out deferring opinions, by only seeking out the things that make us feel good, either physically or mentally, we are exacerbating the the issue of the polarization of, of demographics as far as it applies to media. Media outlets see this and they act accordingly. I mean, in, in essence, they are businesses. And I understand, as you do, that businesses need to need their constituents to stay alive. And so are we really looking at a, as far as this point goes, are we looking at an issue with the media or an issue with ourselves and the media just reacting to it? That's exactly where my head was going with that. And that's what I wanted to bring up next as we talk about, you know, is the tail wagging the dog? Are, are we just seeing the symptoms of a much larger educational and cultural problem that has then led to the inability to have an electorate that wants anything to do with an opposing viewpoint or even understanding the complexity of issues to the point where it's just so much easier for them to be clickbait and to help people make money off of things that are nonsense rather than actually seeking out a good quality show like firing line. Yeah. I, I, you know, we keep coming back to firing line. I think we need to uh, get in touch with Buckley's heirs and get that show back on, on uh, television because <laughs> it's the longest running show in television history. So why not continue it? Well, I think the question is, and we see this in politics, especially is, is where, where are the leaders right now? And firing line would not have worked without the characters that it had. I firmly believe that. And I think we see that now with, you know, I, I don't think that debate culture is completely gone. I just think that there's no one capable of debating, if that makes sense. So so to that point where I think that what we're seeing in the media is just driven by a lack of people like uh, Gore Vidal or William Buckley to to have a discussion and present well thought out ideas. It's like you said, it's talking points. It's a 30 second soundbite. Um, driven on every network because you have quote opposing viewpoints on MSNBC and CNN. And I mean, they brought crossfire back to CNN and you, it, it just completely flops. <laughs> yeah. I mean the, the powerhouses of debate and I use that term loosely in this sense, these days are, are people like, I don't know, uh, you know, uh, what's her name? Um, Ann Coulter, you know, people see her as a debater. You know, she wouldn't have lasted 30 seconds against somebody like Buckley. She wouldn't have. Well, actually, she she didn't last 30 seconds against Buckley because Buckley had her had her on firing line. But uh, especially somebody like Hitchens, who who could had a tendency to be savage, obviously, but was an intellectual powerhouse. So we, you're right. We don't have a lot of people who have taken up the mantle because I don't think we have people who understand the necessity for debate. I actually recently was asked at a bar why I like to debate politics, why I like to debate any given philosophical issue. I said, well, it's important. It's important to draw awareness to other sides of the argument. It's important to just not shut down. As ludicrous as I find some ideas on both the left and the right, 
I want to hear them out. You know, uh, one of the one of my favorite people to listen to forever uh, since I was a kid. You know, I got into the punk rock mentality and ideology very early on, and that was Henry Rollins, who now just does spoken word and, and has a weekly article. You know, has for many years, and he's a really smart guy. And he said at one point when discussing, you know, and this is, I think, even more relevant today than it was when he said it, he said, you know, I, I'm the guy who wants to hear the racist out, you know, and this is coming from a hard liberal. He's like, I want to sit down with the racist for five hours and let him talk. Tell me why you believe this. And at the end of it, I'm going to, I'm going to be like, yeah, I don't hear you, but we need to, to give people the, the time of day, so to speak. We need to give people a platform, not necessarily a, a national platform, but a platform between us as individuals that says, you're being heard. Here's why you're wrong. Here's why you're right. And, and obviously not in the case of racism being right, because it's never right. But making certain concessions, even as simple as the hearing somebody out, begins to grow a bond between individuals that is unbreakable and greatens society. Well, let me ask you, we, we obviously grew up in the same uh, school system. So I, I think back to, especially when you get to a high school age, I can't think of one time where not only from an educational perspective that we're not just handed, here's what you need to read, write a paper about this and then turn it in. We're not going to talk about why it matters. We're not really going to go too in depth in anything. We're not going to talk about anything having to do with cultural differences, people in this classroom that are different than you. Uh, I mean, I, I feel like we start people off at a young age of having no ability or practice engaging in thoughts or uh, cultural differences. Whatsoever. I agree. And you know, as far back, and you bring up high school and things like that, as far back as I can remember, you know, we always have the five uh, components of, of the perfect story or, you know, the perfect phraseology, and that's the who, what, when, where, and why. Since I was a small child, my favorite of those has always been why. And that didn't stop, hasn't stopped yet. And that's probably why I'm pursuing the profession I am. And I think the why is the most important question. And again, you know, I, I don't mean to dwell on this, but that's one of the reasons I gravitated towards kind of the, the punk rock mentality was that was the, you know, it's all about the attitude. And I think we've lost attitude, you know, we, or at least we have misplaced attitude these days. We don't ask why we just file lockstep and go about our merry way. I think that's absolutely true. I think that um, that's one of the biggest things that I challenged. I'll never forget um, having a, a particular class, and this was in middle school, I believe. And I, every time we would do something, I'd say, why? Why do we need to learn this? Why are we doing this? And he said, he finally just leveled with me and, and said, frankly, you just need to learn how to essentially learn, learn how, essentially learn how to learn. And I translate that now in a more cynical way of just learning how to do <laughs> what you are told. And and while I may not have been quite as 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 punk rock as you, I think that that's a little bit of the streak that I would like to see more of is people saying, you know, we're not going to take it sort of thing. And 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 now you've got the obviously not the 
the off stream, but the mainstream punk rock and alt culture is very much pro oh, authority in, in some sort of contrarian way that I can't wrap my head around. And I'm going, where, where is this questioning of what you're being? Well, told and to do? I think a lot of that is, is there's no, I think we're going down the rabbit hole a little bit here, but I'm loving it. Uh, there, there's very little innovation we're seeing anymore. You think about, and I think you and I have had this discussion about using Rolling Stone as a uh, example. Rolling Stone was the alternative. You know, it was new, it was fresh. You were hearing from voices like Hunter Thompson, who you couldn't get more alternative than Hunter Thompson. And now Rolling Stone is the institution. Now Rolling Stone just has, you know, 15 staff writers who try and regurgitate Hunter Thompson's syntax in some fashion or another and put it out for mass production because everybody reads Rolling Stone now. When in fact, you know, Rolling Stone back in the day would have been more for the hippie culture, but now it gets delivered to, you know, the rich guy up the street because he wants to hear about the latest Radiohead album or some crap. And I think we, we've seen, we've been we've seen certain institutions for so long. Punk rock has kind of become one of those institutions we've seen for so long that it has become mainstream and we haven't seen any fresh ideas come out anymore that really question the, the, you know, status quo. You even look at Antifa, you know, a, a lot of people say you couldn't get more radical than Antifa. And I would tend to agree. However, Antifa is still a, a regurgitated artifact from the early 20th century you know in uh england with the uh um you know labor union strike or violence that occurred and then in post-world war ii germany you know it's something that creeps up time and time again it even creeped up in punk rock culture in the 1980s you know every radical thing that we're seeing nowadays is still some artifact of the past and we don't have anything new. And I think that speaks to, you know, the big reason we're having this part of the discussion. Well, you're right. And I think to bring it around is, is the question really that, that the mass media, if you want to call it that, has become so institutionalized at this point in society that it, it cannot then question itself. It just becomes this, uh, this leviathan of, of power that is just, only interested in protecting its own power, which I kind of mentioned earlier. And I'm afraid that's what we see with the way they act when now it's very easy for someone to publish an unverified story of very important significance and sure they get fired an editor gets reprimanded or whatever, but it just keeps on churning and no one says, wait a minute, you're going to pay for that. I think it just keeps the will. Which I, I mean, early on in the show, I said about you, you've let me publish whatever I wanted to publish in any of your websites or publications you've worked for over the years. And I highly respect that. And I think the world needs more of that. I recall one time I wrote an article for you, I believe, when you were working at a local paper here in Asheville. And I went so far as to call Barack Obama the new Nixon, which in a conservative paper, <laughs> I'm sure was not a, a you know, popular statement. But you still let me do it because, A, I wanted to do it because it was controversial and B, because people need to be woken up to, to the you know, cycle that's being perpetuated here at 
And so if we're aware, we can begin to break that cycle. Yeah. When you, when you aren't comfortable with hearing something that you're uncomfortable with, I think that's a you problem. And I was just uh, watching the new Dave Chappelle comedy uh, series on, uh, on Netflix. And it was the, the, he, he did two episodes uh, a few months ago and then two new episodes just came out and I was watching it and he was really talking about how you can't get up on stage and say the things that you used to say anymore, because regardless of the fact that he says that he feels like he makes fun of everyone, that there are, that there are groups and topics that he's not allowed to, to, to make fun of or make jokes about. And he, he kind of touches on that, 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 Hey, you know, look, look at yourself and why can't you laugh at certain things? Why, why can't you view things with a little bit lighter heart? Why is it so serious that he has to be careful of what he says? You know, and, and we can get into that's a, a can be a totally different well, can of worms. Have to do a different show about, about you know, that one. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But I think it, it goes back into the same sort of reflective nature of of people not being able to handle an idea that's different than theirs. And whether that's the nightly news and you have to just watch Fox news or MSNBC, or you have to just listen to NPR and you can't process any other viewpoint. I think it goes into popular culture as well. We see that in movies and TV shows where they just don't touch certain subjects because people can't process them. We're, we're, we're not a mature. No, not at all. And you know, you hear a lot of people and at the risk of sounding like a Republican, you know, because, uh, you know, don't tell anyone. I, <laughs> okay. no one will listen to All right. Uh, at the risk of sounding like a Republican, you know, we, we do have a lot of focus on not in the, the narrow sense that we're hearing it a lot nowadays, but in the broader sense of we are very focused on our safe spaces. And as we discussed earlier, social media and, you know, this kind of uh, uh, demographic driven news culture has insulated us from anything really you know, that the would lash out at our, you know, I don't know, uh, uh, sensitivities, I guess, would be a way to put it, and, and deli- delicate uh, delicate, sensibilities. So, God, I got to be honest, man, I completely lost my train of thought. You were talking about how you were a closet Republican and you didn't want anyone to know. <laughs> yeah, I don't know that that was the word I used. <laughs> but we do insulate ourselves from safe spaces a lot. And I think that that's a big issue. It's very dangerous. You know, I, I've said consistently for years, there's actually a poem that I always think about because, you know, I, I think in regards to literature a lot. And uh, Jim Carroll was a, a famous poet. If anybody ever saw the, the basketball diary with Leonardo DiCaprio, he's playing Jim Carroll. And, he wrote a, a poem about a girl he had known who was, I think, 13 years old in the 60s who had died of a, a hepatitis from heroin use. And it was It's a poem called For Elizabeth. It's one of the most beautiful poems you'll ever read. But at, at one point, he says, you, you've died with your innocence untested. And I think that's the direction we're headed. We're all remaining kind of so young at heart we're refusing to test our innocence at all, or more directly to what we're, we're speaking about, our ideology. We refuse to test it. And, and again, debates, discussions, you know, these test your ideology so you can better refine it. 
I'm not saying go out there and have a debate and then completely flip to the other side, be a liberal and just, you know, a real liberal, not, not what we have today, by the way, but, uh, uh, you know, institute liberal values, little L and, you know, follow lockstep with, with the good cause. No, keep any value you want, but having these discussions, reading the unpopular opinion, furthering the, the idea uh, that you are correct is paramount. So that idea will be become a mutant version of itself if you go through enough, as well it should. It'll make it more refined, it'll make it more insulated to attack, and you will be able to to die happy with it, I think. Well, I think that leaves us at a, a very good point to say that this will be part one of the the great discussion. Well, it'll be part one of probably many, many, many discussions, but we'll say at least part one of the media discussion uh, that, we're, that we're having on this episode, because I think that we, we have kind of gone down the rabbit hole a little bit, but we've hit on some really good things that I want to bring up next time and talking about how, um, you know, I think that college is also playing a big part. We talked about grade school and how we're not really getting challenged at that level. And I think that that is actually even ramped up a little bit uh, when you get to the to the college level and we have more and more people going to college than ever. Um, we've got more and more media outlets than ever, places where you can just get filled up with whatever uh, particular viewpoint you want to reinforce. And you don't have people who can come on a show and have discussions like this. Um, so I want to invite you back, Matt. Yeah, sounds perfect uh, to me. I'm looking forward to it. That sounds, uh, sounds great. We'll wrap up this episode and then, um, stay tuned for, uh, another episode, uh, coming down the pipe.